Sci-Fi Saturday Night. Sci-Fi Saturday Night. Stay tuned with the two with two O's. See? How's that? Sci-Fi Saturday Night. We will begin in mass invasion. We'll tell your people to surrender now and avoid war. It is now time for us to put Earth under our rule. It's your sacred duty to tell us the truth. Confess, confess that you will give me witchcraft. You expect me to believe that you can overrun the entire world? We cannot be defeated. We have never been defeated. That is the message to your people. Yeah, they're dead. They're all messed up. Sci-Fi Saturday Night. From an abandoned packing crate on sub-level 9 in Area 51, welcome to TalkCast 363, yet one more edition of Sci-Fi Saturday Night. Feeling somewhat comforted by it, for no apparent reason, I'm your host, The Dome. Joining the TalkCast tonight, the rest of the gang in the Peabody Time Tunnel, our own button-pushing, keyboard-clacking, sonic screwdriver, violent virtuoso, Kriana. I have even click your keys now. Hmm. What a new keyboard. Nice. From the sunny beaches of Pluto's Ammonia Lakes region, reading anything she damn well pleases because she's in vacation mode. It's Zombrarian. I don't unmute when I'm on vacation. <laughs> you don't unmute most times. Now introducing the man who's personally responsible for Pop Rocks. Yes, the candy that explodes in your mouth was invented by our very own Awake by Java after a night of clandestine pool cleaning in an abandoned suburban shantytown. He stubbed his toes whilst eating a Milky Way. The resulting stars from the pain were all the catalyst he needed to make him the multi-hundredaire he is today. You're in the presence of confectionery greatness. He's here, our very own futurist and gamer, the guy who likes really shiny stuff, Awake by Java. You know, I do, I do spend an awful lot, lot of time watching candy making videos on YouTube for no apparent so, reason. <laughs> no, because they're amazing. They're amazing videos. There's nothing like a glob of hot sugar to just, you know, calm you down. Is that a euphemism? I kind of think Maybe. it might be. Ah, kind of Kriana. What kind of switches are on your new keyboard? <laughs> well, they're custom razor switches, but apparently they're the equivalent of blue. They're the best kind okay. of switch. Oh, they're blue switches. Oh, congratulations. Yeah, uh, clickiest of switches. And yet, far less clicky than we've known in the past. No, they should be equally as clicky. No, join with me, guys. Is this not far less quicky, clicky? Well, just because I'm not typing right now. No, even when you were typing. Seriously. Seriously. Okay. So, uh, joining... <laughs> Thank you, Sombrarian. Go ahead. Leon T. Kremsner and William A. Mitchell were the inventors of Pop Rocks. December 12th, 1961. It's good to have Google, isn't it? Remember when I hid them in cookies and brought them to your house and scared you, Dome? I, I, I kind of do, yes. <laughs> that was my favorite day. It was a fun, interesting kind of cookie thing. And yeah. now you never know when it's going to happen again. I kind of don't. You're absolutely right. Um, anyhow, joining the podcast tonight are uh, some uh, uh, people that we met at Granite State Comic Con whilst uh, walking through Artist's Alley, there are hundreds of things that kind of grab your attention. And as we were walking by, Cameron, our booking monkey, said, Ooh, look. And I went, That's really different. Joining me, two really different people, Emily Rain Andrews and Christian Castle. Please tell me I got even right to that close, maybe, kind of, sort it, of. It was close enough. <laughs> oh, uh, I accept it. 
co-creators of a webcomic and book and something quite more than that called Magnamel. Guys, welcome to the show. Thank, Thank you, you so much. And thanks for the wonderful introduction. It's <laughs> nice of you. Well, you know, it's it's kind of difficult to walk through Artist Alley and not be constantly diverted by, ooh, shiny, ooh, cute, ooh, cool. <laughs> but uh, as we walked past, I just kind of went, that's a very different kind of illustration. That's a very different kind of, of story that they're trying to tell. And uh, talk a little bit about what Magnamel is in terms of story. Uh, in terms of the story, so the... The world uh, kind of takes place in this this fantastical other world where um, where what humans believe in are made real. So imagine you know uh, if you had enough people believing in a certain type of let's say vampire or werewolf, this world takes that amalgamation of belief and turns into a real thing. Um, so from there, we kind of delve deeper into um, you know the the it's a toys versus monsters kind of narrative. So it's a really kind of simple narrative structure as far as that's concerned, but it takes that kind of fantastical element of, you know, again, toys versus monsters, but brings it into a more, um, individual, uh, you know, uh, a story and we can play around with, um, you know, what it actually means to be a reflection of humanity's, you know, subconscious. So a lot of, what I like playing with uh, stems from, you know, uh, young Carl Jungian uh, like theory and grappling with, you know, the shadow or you know, what, you know. Um, sorry, I'm trying to think of, you know. How no, you're fine. Like, you're doing great, man. Um, but it, you know, for for protagonists in a story, but all to to acknowledge that they have their own particular weaknesses and their own particular demons that they're grappling with. Um, but again, contextualized around this, uh, you know, moral binary of there being toys versus monsters. There's one that one side that by definition is inherently evil. Uh, and one somewhat by definition is inherently good, but what does that actually look like when it's played out? Um, and that's really kind of the sandbox that we've created for ourselves. So my guess is, Christian, that the original inception of its context came from you. Yes, uh, it's it's been very much a uh, a two person thing, um, but the the original kind of conception was for me and I, Emily and I met in the same uh, master's program, and we were working on a a project together, and I was like, hey. You know, let's let's try to do something that isn't that that's going to persist past our program. Something that we can do uh, and take forward, regardless of where we end up. You know, a year, five years from now. Yeah, and how I long? totally fell in love with that base concept. Um, so, yeah. How how long ago was that? that uh, about two years ago, I want to say. Year and a half. Yeah. Um, so we actually released the comic um, about like a year and a month ago. So um, we were probably working on it for six months before that. Yeah. So it's, so, it's been a while. So Emily, you mm -hmm. bring the visual aspect to the theory. Mm -hmm. And when you first got an understanding of this world building that he was talking about, did you start to get ideas? Did you start to get concepts of what it might look like? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, we kind of uh, dove into the comic uh, immediately through the lens of, um, you know, our two main characters and this kind of like smaller story. And um, I don't know, I immediately, like they spoke to me so much. Um, I feel like they almost designed themselves. Um, but as far as like the look of the world goes, um, there's a lot of different influences. Like I definitely wanted to call back a lot to um, Victorian era because I think that is really interesting for uh, toys and what they looked like. But um, just I try to pull in as many influences as I possibly can since we're drawing from like 
multiple mythologies and things like that. So yeah, and the the style reflects that. So you know, we're this this story and this kind of world is is different, um, and we wanted to make sure that the the aesthetic matched that as well. So we have a very uh, you know sketchy style and a watercolor. Um, and it kind of fits into the metaphysical aspects of the world because it's a very dreamy kind of uh, comic when you're going through it. Um, yeah, and so it, it was pretty much all Emily's inspiration, but it was it was perfect and spot on. But the reality is, is that this web comic is kind of just the first. Uh, I don't quite know how to put this. The first part of this world building concept that you have. Yeah. Uh, and so that's kind of the exciting part is that, um, so my, I did a, an entire thesis on the uh, relationship between transmedia storytelling and world building. Um, and so I spent, you know, way too long delving into super nerdy <laughs> shit like that. Um, <laughs> that's the best kind. <laughs> Yeah, oh, 100%. And, you know, anyone who, who wants to, you know, get their, their master's or whatever, make sure you do your thesis that lets you read a lot of Dungeons and Dragons and, <laughs> you know, other mythologies. It's perfect. What um, is nerdier than that? My master's thesis is in Dungeons and Dragons. Yep. <laughs> um, but, yeah, it, it's... Uh, it, the, the comic is kind of our first um, artifact. Uh, it's it's a good introduction into the world because it's taken through the lens of an individual, not so much as a, you know, history book. Um, it, it, we're able to kind of build strong characters and show the interplay between, you know, monsters and toys and how that isn't as uh, divorced as it sounds from the offset. Um, but we have a couple more projects that we're working on concurrently um, sometime within either the second quarter of next year or the third quarter we're releasing a uh, mobile game for free um, and that's going to take place in a different part of the world but you know there, there are obviously narrative themes that uh, you know are, are present throughout everything and then um, you know, de depending on how popular the comic gets or the game gets, and you know, if it becomes uh, financially feasible, we also have a tabletop game in the works. Um, but we're really just taking it one step at a time. And you know, this is the comic. The comic is kind of our litmus test to be like, all right, this is our crazy idea. This is this is the story <laughs> we want to tell. Does anyone want to read it? And you know, before we put too much effort into into something that you know no no one would give a shit but right, we've um, uh, seen pretty good results so far so. yeah it's uh, I, I was gonna say based on the response of the people that i saw uh at GraniteCon, and granted it wasn't for a very long time there were an awful lot of people who were interested in just the aesthetic of the comic itself and were just kind of spending a lot of time looking at it oh 100 uh, so how how many how many cons have you been to? And am I right? Has there been that kind of a positive response to it? Only three. GraniteCon was our third. Um, and yeah, it's been amazing. I really, um, everyone's so nice. And it's just been really um, gratifying to actually get to meet people in person at conventions instead of just over social media. That is single-handedly the cool one of the coolest experiences of my life is going to cons and you know because when 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 you spend a lot of time making something as you know uh, as niche as a web comic um, you know you, you get a lot of feedback from your family and friends but you you know it's it's always positive but to to go put yourself out there to be in a lineup with other creators and to see people that have no reason to lie to you come <laughs> up and go, holy crap, I love this. That That is Yeah, and it's great. Amazing. You're like, I'm not throwing things into the void, putting them on the internet. You yeah. know, no, there's, you there's are, but people you're actually here. getting a positive response back. Yeah. That's the yeah. cool part. It's, it's, it's amazing. Um, and, you know, it's kind of made, you know, even, even if, you know, five years from now, we're, we're nowhere. Uh, just being able to, to experience that for, you know, a brief moment has made the entire process worth it. it 
Yeah, absolutely. It's been amazing. So you took the first story arc of the webcomic, which is, I think, the first 80 panels is or something like close to 80 panels. Yep. And you turned that into a book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, one, of, one of the like key kind of tenants of uh, Magnum L is, is a you know, overarching project, not just the comic, is we want to provide our content uh, as free as we could possibly make it. Um, it's something both practical and ideological behind that. Um, and so we, we constantly update, uh, every, every Monday we put up a new page and, you know, we haven't missed a day yet. And essentially we put it out, you know, to the world and say, you know, instead of taking a risk and spending money on something you may not enjoy, you know, consume it for free. Um, but if you, if you like it and you want to support us and make our lives a little easier, there, there are ways to do so. So we ran a Kickstarter, um, just as put out feelers to see if anyone wanted a physical copy, um, which is all, always kind of an interesting, uh, experience or experiment because, you know, uh, anyone who just wanted to consume the, the narrative or the art can do so. They can hop onto our website at any time and be up to date. But to, to like something enough that you're like, you know what, screw it. I want to spend 20 bucks. And I want to get a, a physical, rep, you know, a physical uh, representation of this art that I enjoy. Um, you know, it's, it's fulfilling because they don't, you know, no, they don't have, there, there's no gate. Um, so the, we know that anyone who's, who is supporting us is doing it because they actually believe or they want to support, which is, again, amazing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you guys make it sound like you didn't know how uh, <laughs> interesting and different this this comic was. Well, oh, it's hard. It's I mean, it's really um, scary because interesting and different. Um, you know, it's great that people latched onto it, but because it's something different, it's also like uh, I feel like it would have been easy for people to just turn the other cheek because it's something that they're not used to seeing. Yeah, and we we uh, spent a very large portion of the last year kind of locked up in a room, and me going, "No, the 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 dolls have to die. They they like it needs to happen, and the werewolf <laughs> needs to be there." And we're just the conversation we have we we have about this are just so uh, bizarre. Um, <laughs> It, it it's easy to be like, well, I think only we find it interesting because it's it's so different. Um, but to see other people as kooky and as, as crazy as we are also respond to it is like, oh, okay, cool. So we're, we're not we're not too far gone on the sanity scale. <laughs> now, you uh, I read your thesis, which which I think uh, uh is really interesting. It's a nice distillation of where you started, where you are now, and where you want to be. Uh, and and your, your your main statement within the thesis is Magnumel is an experiment in transmedial world building and brand development that came out of our individual master's thesis, which sounds just like a master's thesis. Nice job. Um, <laughs> <laughs> hey, the, de- the degree was worth it. Fine. You, you got... You, you got the one sentence distillation down perfectly. What is transmedial world building? Uh, so, so the, the, it's two parts. So, um, transmedia storytelling is uh, the act of housing multiple narratives within a singular uh, universe between different mediums. So, um, you know, let's take Star Wars for example. You can consume Star Wars, uh, you know, through the movies, obviously. But there's books, comics, games, um, you know, TV shows. Uh, there, you can enjoy different aspects of that universe um, without having to consume all of it. But the important thing is that each medium stands on its own. So you can just play, you know, the the Shadows of the Empire, you know, N64 game and have a fulfilling experience. But if you want a little bit more, you can also watch, you know, the Clone Wars, let's say. Um, and then each each subsequent thing you consume within that world, or that universe, rather, uh, it, it, it 
it adds to a sum greater than its parts. So you, you get more out of it um, by being able to consume more. Um, and world building is, you know, is, is it dovetails pretty well into that where if, you know, traditionally, uh, if you were going to be a world builder, uh, the majority of people who, you know, partake in that experiment are uh, like D&D players, for example. So the DM builds a world for players to, to play in. Typically, you know, you're playing in Faerun or, you know, whatever campaign. Um, but after a few rounds of that, any DM is going to create his own, right? So you create your own rules, your own, you know, uh, uh, races, plants, bad guys, good guys for your players to consume. Um, and anyone who's read like Tolkien or, you know, uh, any fiction like uh, a, a Song of Ice and Fire, you know, the, those aspects um, that really resonate with people that, that they can believe in the verisimilitude of this, you know, secondary world. Um, and I took that and tried to, OK, so let's let's take the practice of creating a world from scratch, but also with the expectation that it's going to be broken up into pieces. Um, and so my thesis kind of delved into the practical applications of that for the creator and the producer, but also the uh, implications for the consumer or the audience. Um, but, but you guys are the creators, okay? Yep. You guys have created this sandbox, as you put it, creative sandbox that gives anyone the tools needed to pursue their individual passions and in return, offer up their creations for others to use as well. What do you mean? What okay, does that so, mean? yeah, so that that's a completely different aspect. So one of the one of one of the um, larger issues, and not even part of this, that I've been, you know, exploring is uh, copyright um, and and the conflict between uh, you know uh, appropriating cultures and you know, trying to take pieces uh, of work um, without having to, you know, spend, you know, all that money, um, you know, licensing. So part of what Magnum L started as, I wanted to make a sandbox that would allow someone to, you know, if, if to, to make a comic, to make a, 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 you know, YouTube series or a game or, you know, a, a card system or whatever um, without having to worry about doing everything from scratch so like uh, Emily and I were were both uh, fellows in our program uh, we were project management fellows so we were working with undergrads um, and Champlain College is, is a really cool uh, uh, game studio program so a lot of undergrads show up there to um, you know learn how to uh, design a game or program or whatever again everyone that we were surrounded with, you know, was a creator and had a passion for making things, but they really had a passion for like their particular part. And most of the artifacts that we consume today, you either have one very gifted and very determined person making everything and then buying whatever he can't. So like a, you know, let's just keep it in the realm of video games, right? Um, you can have one person who's really good and they can they can program they can design they can make some you know easy assets but they might not be able to make music so they either have to spend their money and take that risk um or you know convince one of their friends through you know somehow or you know try to hire or contract out that work um and i thought it'd be really cool to create an ip that kind of subverts that need so like uh if someone wanted to make their own comic, I wanted them to be able to use our characters, to use you know some of our assets, to to take pieces, you know, and make whatever they want. Um, so you're kind of combining fan fiction and skill sharing and all this and collaborative storytelling all into one. Pretty much, pretty much exactly right. Um, That's but you know that they're. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, it's and the, the problem with it is with like so many other things is uh, unfortunately to make it fair for everyone requires, uh, you know, uh, a pretty good lawyer and pretty good lawyers re require a pretty good amount of money. Um, <laughs> yeah, they do. Yeah. Unfortunately. Um, yeah. 
Um, and the other thing, and this kind of builds or connects to the transmedia world building aspect is the issue with can- canonicity. So um, let's say, you know, someone contacts us, you know, five years from now and says, I really want to tell a story. I want to use your main characters and I want to do this with them. And, you know, there, there needs to be some sort of hierarchy to so that consumers of the world at large know what's canon and what's not. Um, and to bring it back to like Star Wars, for example, um, when Disney made their purchase, uh, they they took like 30 years of background world building, all the books and everything and said, you know what? That doesn't really jive with what we're doing. So all of that is now legends um, is, is the moniker they use to differentiate what's actually real and what could be real. Um, because one of the most important tenets within world building as a practice is that that feeling of verisimilitude. People need to know that what they're reading is true, even even in a fictional setting. It's very important that the characters are, respond uh, consistently and reliably, and that they're not, um, you know, uh, uh, breaking their the the you know anything that they have read previously. Um, so essentially, if they want to play in the sandbox, they've got to stay in the sandbox. Well, but the, so that that is the the first uh, answer that I came to. But the problem with that is I don't want to be stopping anyone from telling the story they want to tell. I don't want to be that guy saying, uh, "No, excuse me, Sonny wouldn't do that. Change what you want to do." <laughs> um, so in my ideal world, it'd be something where you know if someone wanted to to do something with Mag- within Magnamel and you know part of even the the metaphysical foundation of the world. Uh, facilitates that because again everything within this world comes from human belief so you can literally do pretty much anything um and i wanted people to be able to do whatever they wanted um but again and ideally what would happen is someone would contact us say hey i really want to do this thing um and we'd be like okay awesome let us know you know here's here's what you need you know sign this contract uh it essentially says you know whatever you make isn't like the whatever you make anyone else can use as well but the artifact that you create is yours to own so whatever amount that you make off of it if you sell it or whatever that's yours um but if you create a new character or like you know a a song or you know whatever someone else can also borrow it or take it or you know uh remake it as well and then what we would do is kind of give it a grade like this is this is a gold like this is canon as far as we're concerned you nailed it this is exactly what we envisioned for the world that's perfect or you know let's say someone comes in and they make a really just uh disgusting you know vile um bigoted (laughs) you know whatever uh if that's the story they want to tell i i want them to be able to tell it uh but it may not fit with my my moral compass or my view for the the future of the project so i'd give it like a a bronze or you know a you know whatever metal and say that this this is has our support insofar as it's you know we want people to be able to tell the story they want to make but we don't regard it as canon this is this is kind of fan fiction level um and that way that would hmm? be pig iron Pig the pig eye, perfect. <laughs> um, or lead, yeah, something like that. Yeah, exactly. This but, doesn't support our views necessarily. Yeah, but it gives people the tools to, you know, explore their their uh, passions, um, and if they want to do it in the world we've created, that's awesome. But it also lets people who've been here from day one know that you know whatever whatever comes out in the future isn't going to subvert, subvert the, the uh, again, verisimilitude of the world at, at its core. The project is Magnamel, but I'm not sure if that's the project or just the first outcome of the project because it seems to be sprouting in a number of different directions. And as, as new directions come to pass with that, I hope you'll come back and talk to us again about what's new, what's going on, and what's going to happen. This is probably one of the most unique projects uh, we've seen in an awfully long time. Um, Guys, thank you so much for joining us tonight. 
Thank you. Thank you. This has been a pleasure. Yeah. Emily, uh, Andrews, and Christian. Yeah, oh, right. No, not you know. <laughs> I knew I was going to screw it up at some point. That's all right. It's the, the curse of the Polish. Christian Konzol. <laughs> Holy cow. <laughs> Co-creators of Magnamel, their comic, their webcomic, their world. Uh, thanks for joining us, guys. Yeah, again, thank, thank you. you. This has been awesome. And now, what the hell? Let's do some news. And joining us back in the news are the people who have been in the background, talking a little bit here and there, Java Zambarian and Kriana. Um, before we get into, and I know, uh, Java, we want to talk about some of Star Trek. We're not, we're not going to talk about all of the new Star Trek, but we... Uh, I spent uh, the, this past Saturday at uh, Keene Comic Con in, in Keene, New Hampshire. Keene Comic Con is the second mini convention uh, that we've been invited to. The first one was Plastic City. And essentially, uh, the difference between those and regular conventions is they're one day, they're very inexpensive uh, for producers as well as attendees and they tend to be a little or in some cases a lot smaller uh, i want to take a minute uh to uh thank terry thomas who, who uh was one of the people who, who brought keen comic-con together for inviting us down and uh, Jim from Finner Comics, who was there as well, we met some incredibly cool people. Um, did you know, and I'm just throwing this out to the rest of the cast, that there is a, a international lightsaber uh, uh, combat network? Yes. <laughs> Want to tell me about it? It's called Ludo Sport, and one of the guys there uh, runs Ludo Sport for um, Vermont. His name is Matt Hoffman, and Matt and I uh, just kind of talked for a little bit. Uh, it's essentially the International Lightsaber Combat Academy, and... As much as I was unwilling to believe that this was real, not only is it real, uh, these guys are kind of amazing, especially after the cosplayers that we've seen at other conventions where, you know, they're just waving it around and they're making the noise, uh, which they don't do, by the way. Um, but it was... Uh, kind oh, can of a you just make that noise again for me? Yeah, thank you. Not a yeah, problem. Thanks. Just my needed pleasure. to make sure. Yeah. My 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 pleasure to to be humiliated yet again by you guys. Two. New text tone. <laughs> uh, so uh, Matt is going to be on in uh, the the coming weeks to talk about uh, Ludo Sports, how big it is in Europe, and how it, it's gaining popularity. Uh, in the United States as well. We met uh, a gentleman by the name of, and I'm trying to find him now, uh, Noah Whipple, who's an artist. And uh, he, he suffers from <laughs> creative ADD. And he says, if he can't be doing something constantly, uh, he finds new ways to express himself with art. He had some really, really interesting stuff there, and I just thought it would be cool to uh, talk to him as well, as well as uh, a, a cartoonist and animator by the name of uh, Zach Shapiro, who uh, I've wanted to have on for a long time, and I guess we're going to have him. Oh, and you know who else we're going to have on? We're going to have on Shakespeare. That's right. You heard it here first. Shakespeare will be on Sci-Fi Saturday night in the coming weeks. So with, with that in mind, uh, I look forward to, to asking him 
about Stratford-upon-Avon and other things like that. So, Java, what do you want to talk about Star Trek? Okay, so two things. First of all, <laughs> is, this, is this episode five? Are we five episodes in? Is that where we're at? After this we are, yes. episode, this past Saturday was five. I haven't, I haven't seen the newest one that the internet exploded about. Um, We're not even bothered so, talking about it. So let's not talk about it because I don't really care um, about the, the language. Anyway, <laughs> why they um, exploded? Yes, but there, there are some interesting things. We haven't talked about it yet. I don't think. Um, no, we haven't talked about it at all. The, the first thing that I find really interesting is that the first, the entire first two episodes were prequel and had no bearing on the actual show. I think like, the first episode it was, was an absolute MacGuffin. It, yeah. it, it set you up and then threw it all away. Yeah. And that's fine. That's fine. Except Star Wars shows in the past have always done those sequences as flashbacks. Correct. So it's a, it's kind of a major departure from the expectation. And I didn't engage with those two episodes. Like, there wasn't all that much that was compelling about the characters or what was happening. And I really didn't understand how a first officer in Starfleet could act in that manner now granted i was raised on next generation i was not not raised on the original series uh i have no affinity for the reboot movies um so for me a first officer is Riker. you know right and Riker Riker would you know push his authority push authority a bit but when Picard said fall in line, he did. And and he was never the focus of the show. He may have been the focus of an episode. But right. the show was always, every Star Trek to this point, this being the exception, was about the captain. Well, and, and you know, Next Generation played with that later on as they, as they explored the character of Worf and, you know, um, and Data and... And even LaForge to a certain extent, but right. um, again, it was it would it would be a sequence or a, or a season long thing or or, or a long term um, story arc. So it is a little bit different. That said, um, once we got into episode three, I really enjoyed episode three, and you know it wasn't because we had a traditional you know, Star Trek type of situation on the ship. Um, but rather, it was a monster of the week. It was totally a monster of the week. And at one point, even the, uh, uh, not the Vulcans, uh, the Klingons became monster of the week. Right. Which I thought was and, also beautifully done. Um, you know, I, I thought that was really fun. It was really fun for them to go to the sister ship. It set up a big story arc. It explained a lot about what was going on on Discovery. Um, and that was really nice. It was really nice to get that kind of insight into what was going on, as well as have a fun, you know, Monster of the Week episode to get me engaged. Then in the direct next episode, it lost me again because we went back into that major story arc and the Klingons and what's going on and all of that stuff. So much less of a, of a you know something I could engage with quickly. Um, but I think that they're making, my friends and I have been talking about it a lot because I think personally, and, and not all of my friends agree with this, I think that they're making good decisions because they're actively choosing when they're going to hold to the, the canonical, um, you know, archetypes of Star Trek episodes and, and worlds and they're and the choices that they're making about when to depart from that seem to be purposeful which is one of the things that really bugged me about um 
Deep Space Nine and um, Enterprise. The, the choices that they made on those shows, and I know Deep Space Nine got found its groove, but um, those shows made departures from the, the Star Trek archetype in such a way that it bugged me. It was just like what we were talking about with Magnamel. I couldn't trust the world in those situations. So it took me out of the story as I tried to figure out what was going on with the world. I think Enterprise may have been the worst uh, uh, one of those for right. various reasons, but yeah. Well, and and some of the movies too, but we're, we don't need to go there. No. Like, um, <laughs> because that's, that's a, uh, a whale-sized... Um, departure. Anyway, um, the, <laughs> okay, I'll let I you get do, away with I, that. I, I find myself intrigued by Star Trek and I Discovery, and I want to watch it, which is nice. It's nice to feel that desire to watch a Star Trek show again. Um, I, you know, it's not quite up to the the level of Black Mirror or Stranger Things, or but I, it's growing on me and. That's the other thing that I try to keep in mind about Star Trek is each one of those shows, if you go back and watch the original series, well, I mean, that's an entirely different thing. But That's a whole game, yeah. The Next Generation or Voyager or Deep Space Nine, those shows took a long time to reach their stride. The first three episodes, five episodes of Next Generation, if you go back and rewatch them, they were kind of dull. Right. Like it, not, was, it, it was their not setup. The episodes that you remember. They're not the they're not the ones that, that make you go, okay, this this is an interesting storytelling and um, compelling storytelling. So uh, I'm I'm giving it I'm giving it the benefit of the doubt. The, the one thing that I will say, the, the one big criticism I have is I do not care about the Klingons and their great white hope. <laughs> yeah, is, and you've got to care about them if that's the story arc that they're going to keep pushing. You well, really, you know, one of my friends made that comment about Bach, the the albino Klingon or whatever he is. Yeah. Um, and and it, it kind of resonated. I I understand that there's an inversion going on there, like they're trying to make statements and. And Star Trek has always been political. It always right. has been. It was absolutely. It, that's what G- Gene Roddenberry wanted it to be, and it was on purpose that way. Um, but I'm not quite sure that I care about the story that they're telling with the with the Klingons. It's not that well, I don't like the redesign. The redesign of the Klingons is fine. I think that it's in line with what we know about Klingon society um, right. and canon in that sense. I don't care about the the you know whole thing with the war and the warring um, factions inside of it I, like that's fine too I just I don't find them compelling characters in the same way that does that make sense to yeah it absolutely does but here's what you might find in, in episode five everybody's getting all upset about whatever it is they're getting upset about What's what happens is that there's nods within that one hour towards the original series, towards next gen in very sly ways. And in in fact, in one character uh, that make you realize that they realize the writers realize where they have to be and how they have to move. And I thought uh, the, the one thing that they did was amazing and i'll wait until you watch it and we can talk about it next week but i just kind of went yeah there you go nice job yeah and i think that they're doing that all over the place i mean one of the one of the things that i had to stop and go back and check and then stop and go back again to to point out to my wife was um there was a triple yes there was desk you know and that was just like one of those little things that was like really a nice, it was a nice, nice fan service. Um, and hopefully, you know, the fan service goes beyond just fan service to, to be, you know, compelling and deepening the world that they're building inside of this particular story. Um, yeah. 
So I, I think it's a must must watch for sci-fi fans. I can't I, I, I don't think that anybody can really should really ignore a Star Trek show given um, its importance inside of the genre. Um, but you know that paywall is a, is an issue for a bunch of people, and I think that that makes sense. Um, it's it's going to continue should, to be one too. Yeah, this should be a prime time show. And and the amount of production, the amount of money they're pouring into production and, and stuff is is significant. So I'm not quite sure what their game is here, unless they're their audience and make sure that they're going to have uh, fans beyond the first season, so that they can you know then present it. Maybe they're trying. They might be trying to figure out how to deal with binging, because so many you know taking advantage of, of binge watching when they have to compete against something like Game of Thrones. So I think it's a business strategy, but I, I really I really see it as a, a sticking point for a lot of fans, not genre fans, not Star Trek fans, but um, people who could be fans of this particular story. Right. So, um, and that set, that whole thing is really preface to what is just as interesting to talk about, which is the Orville <laughs> show. Yes. That has which also is getting been, better and better with every episode. And you know, the thing is, I, I, everybody was talking about it. And when they, when they talked, I didn't see any trailers. I didn't really watch anything about it. We just watched the first episode and I was like, okay, so this is a comedy version of a Star Trek. But it hits the notes just right, you know? Like, it hits all of those next-generation Voyager notes, specifically the notes, the music. The music is absolutely on point. So with, are the visuals. And, and so the, the, the opening this, sequence yeah. is just, you sit there, you go, yeah, nice, well, thank you. And, and, you know, I watched somebody, a, a YouTube video, somebody replaced the music of the Orville with the music from the Voyager opening. And you can't tell. I mean, you can one after another, but it's uncanny how how the feeling goes with the visuals of the Orville. And yep. not only that, but the writing. I thought that the writing was going to be a ham up comedy like Family Guy because that's what Simon Carlisle does. It's not. It's pretty. Well there's there are there are jokes, and the jokes are funny, and it's almost like. What would happen if, you know, my gaming buddies did uh, uh, a fan fiction of, of, of Star Trek? Um, but they're not the focus. There is actual storytelling going on there and world building. And so it's an interesting thing to, to kind of compare with Discovery that takes itself very seriously. And purposefully and, so, yeah. Purposefully so, um, and I think admirably so, because Star Trek does that. Um, but then you then you mix in the humor, and, and I think they go really well together. Um, I'm enjoying watching them both at the same time. And, I, if and you again, haven't checked out the Orville, you definitely should. And again, I love the fact that there's no laugh track. It makes it so much more enjoyable for me. Yeah. You know what? I didn't even know that until I didn't, I didn't notice that until you mentioned it. But you're right. There is no laugh track, which is cool. It's you know? absolutely wonderful. It makes it allows you to react as you want, as opposed to being part of the crowd and laughing when everybody else does. Right. Uh, because some of the gags are just groaners. Some of them are in in fact, really cute and really funny, but it's interspersed around storytelling and drama as well. So not having that laugh track was a brilliant, brilliant thing to do. Well, and you know, Seth MacFarlane, I, I have not seen him act in anything. He's pretty decent. I mean, he's not really great, but he's decent. And and the 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 his co-star, the, the lead female role, his ex-wife in the show is also she is hilarious and uh, i've not seen her in anything she was an agents of shield but I've, I've 
I didn't watch that. So, um, you know, I, I, she's really great. The supporting cast is nice uh, and one, doing a good job. There's, I don't know. I mean, I just really like it. I enjoy watching it. I don't want, like, I don't have, like, this deep-seated need to watch it. Um, but if I have uh, the need for comedy or, you know, watch, definitely a must-watch. So Definitely a fun watch for damn sure. Yeah. yeah. Hey, Kriana, you have any idea who's on the show next week? That would be no, because we don't have anybody scheduled yet, but I'm sure we will. And it's been a wonderful night tonight. I want to take a moment. Here we go. To tell you that Sci-Fi Saturday Night is the official podcast of Granite Con. Now, Keen Comic Con as well. Booksandbooze.com and Comic Art House. Visit Comic Art House for some of the best deals on original art from dozens of your favorite artists. If you have a free moment, take a look at Sci-Fi Saturday Night's first anthology, My Peculiar Family, now on Amazon and barnesandnoble.com. More information coming soon on something new. Our intro music production was provided by Rob Watts. Find more of his creations at robwattsonline.com. Our outro music was provided by Lawrence Mate Friday. Check out their groups at Many thanks to the game tonight from the Peabody Time Tunnel, the sweetheart of the Soundboard Canada, and on vacation, Zombrarian. Thank you, both ladies. Back from the Rolls Royce, Shared Vegas lesson, shared dreams, thus the Enjoy.